Anaschutes, Chapter 11. I'm not sure, but I think it had been less than three weeks since I'd found the clinic under the barracks. Long enough to miss the makeup gunnery range, anyway. Now I stood with Private Gerhard Dürer watching snowflakes fall in thick pods like the cotton balls I had bought for the basement. He was an ugly little guy, with buck teeth and plenty of late teen acne piled onto a wealth of older pox scars. He had wire-rimmed glasses that were too narrow for his head so their arms stuck out obtusely over his big ears. His two short blonde hairs seemed to shoot out down the part of the middle of his scalp like the rough bristles of a foxtail broom. At least now they were obscured underneath his Reich-issued mountain cap. I had learned in my files that he would die in the clinic from injuries received during a training accident in the coming winter of 1943. I stared at him as he tapped tobacco into a rolling paper on his thigh. He stopped mid-shake to look up at me, then bounced the makings up slightly as if offering me one. I shook my head slightly. Nein, danke, I said. He smiled at me ingratiatingly, and then began a nervous babbling in German that I didn't totally understand as he finished rolling it. Since I'd started my new job underground, even my Deutsch was improving without even really trying. We looked out over the falling sky of white as it formed a nice layer of snow all over the parking lot. I could smell the stink of whatever awful concoction he was smoking. A low roar approached us from the far side of the barracks and then came into view. Another half-track rolled by on the tarmac, followed by another column of troops marching along in the snow. This time I heard their feet crush the snow beneath them, almost rhythmically. Dura pointed at the troops and babbled at me nervously. Then he held up his pinky and ring fingers, which were wrapped tightly in some sort of bandage that made them look like a swollen bratwurst. He pantomimed a smashing motion over his wounded parts. Apparently some sort of injury I had no documentation for had waylaid his action with the unit marching along. We had so much in common. This was how it was now after putting on the doctor's garb. I didn't see them as aloof phantoms anymore. Now they were real people who saw me too. They even seemed to like me. They saluted me. They gutentagged me. They all were in love with me. Their post-doctor in their midst. I didn't need to appeal to the faint familiarities of Springsteen or the others in my platoon anymore. I'd found new cohorts. We'd sit together in the mess hall, and my chicken enchiladas with rice would become sauerkraut with bratwurst and cabbage soup. I would suddenly be flanked by the gray wool-clad harpingers of that place, and they were so glad to see me, like a pseudo-celebrity. All of the tables around me in the chow hall would be full of shiny, happy faces of the Reich, eagerly consuming whatever was put out for them. I would walk into my office and find a pretty red-haired secretary banging out something on that old typewriter. The clinic drawers were completely organized now filled with syringes and accoutrements. Somehow overnight they had taken care of themselves, finishing where I had left off. I would find myself in the conference room during a training about IED countermeasures and gaze up at the ceiling. The swastika inlaid in the woodwork overhead had been protected as an historic artifact, but now it shined down on me with pride. On one occasion, a refresher course on land navigation around the big conference table became a feast where my fellow officers toasted me and made pledges in fine uniforms holding crystal glasses of brandy with their beautiful wives and mistresses in long gowns. I could not wait to get to work in the morning. I'd sip coffee with the redhead, and occasionally a German private with a sprained ankle would hobble in, or maybe a broken arm, and I'd use my combat lifesaver training to splint him up, along with some painkillers, and another happy customer would leave with a pat on the back. Whenever a patient needed help beyond my training, which was actually pretty rare, my staff was always eager to jump in and show the doc what they knew. There was a pregnant woman who luckily survived along with her baby because my medic Jens had delivered enough calves and piglets back on the farm to know what he was doing, more or less. It was the best job I ever had, 
and the happiest I'd ever been. Sometimes thoughts and memories of someone nipped at the periphery of my brain, a person with soft eyes and brown hair, but most of the time my red-headed secretary, the smiling faces of my comrades clearing a seat for me in the chow hall, the busy hours of happy work and coffee in the basement, kept those old thoughts and that old sting of recollection to a low hum, shrouded away somewhere in the distant past. I think it was just before Halloween that I began to get visits from a thin gentleman in a long black uniform. He wore the Totenkopf, the Death's Head SS insignia on his collar. He smiled at me a few times as he spoke to me, but the smile didn't touch his blue eyes. White orbs with very thin pupils. They stared straight into my own and didn't want any excuses. I smiled and nodded as he talked, and I listened. It was like being in a dream. You hear the voices, but even if you don't catch the words, you get the feeling of what is wanted. And it wasn't anything good. I watched as German men in overalls welded bars onto the inside of the one clinic window. I watched as streams of people over the next weeks were brought in and stripped, then forced into nightgowns. They were long white ones that bore a weird shimmer of recognition somewhere in my ever-worsening memory. People who shook and stuttered with wide, darting eyes. They huddled in corners if we let them, and rocked on their ankles in the tiny exam room. I watched with the SS man as he instructed Jens to inject them with things that made them fall asleep, her shake and foam at the mouth seizing violently. One night I watched as a dark-eyed girl in her late teens raised her arms gracefully into the air, her white nightgown draped over her arms like the long wings of an angel. She arched her head back on a thin neck and smiled with her eyes closed in a look of sheer ecstasy, and then she began to waltz. There was no music, no partner, there was hardly any room, but she did it anyway, moving slowly and softly with the grace of a ballerina over the checkered tiles. I saw her on a gurney the next day, her face still in ecstasy, but bone white staring at the ceiling. Her eyes had turned into orbs in the back of her skull, and a toe tag dangled from her foot, but I couldn't read it. I'd never actually done anything to her or any of the new patients. It seemed like my staff would just smile nervously at me whenever these new arrivals came, and most of the time I would be whisked away to my office while they took care of everything for the good doctor. They were all so excited and happy to have me. One evening when we were about to close shop, the death's head man came in dragging a girl by the arm into my office. Her long brown hair hung over her face, and she was shuddering with sobs. She wasn't drugged up and sedated, looking like lots of the other people he had delivered to us. When Death's Head made his previous deliveries, he carried a cool, aloof detachment as he dropped off his human experiments. This time, though, he was livid. He thrust the girl against my desk as she continued to sob. These are sow! He stopped and heaved for a moment, searching for the words. Then he grabbed the girl by her hair and pulled her towards him. Her head shot back with a jerk, and her brown curls fell away from her face. I saw the familiar brown eyes. Anna? I shot up and almost lunged for her. Her eyes met mine and held them for a second, but there was no recognition, just tears. Death's head's glare flickered to a frown of confusion for a moment. A sinking feeling came over me as he eyeballed me. Then he shouted, Diese Sau hat keinen Namen! This Sau has no name. He dragged her down the hall to the exam room and I chased after. It's just a dream, I told myself. It's like Anna the first time I saw her running. A non-sentient haunting, the book on ghosts I'd read at the library called it, to something stuck on replay forever. I needed that to be true. He flung her onto the exam chair with those straps and tacks and held her there by the throat, then urged me forward from the doorway with an angry shaking arm. He shot a hand down and seized Anna's blouse, jerking the hem up past her belly button. He shrieked something angry in her face, 
then jerked his free hand at me again, making me come closer. It's not real, I repeated in my mind. That's why she doesn't recognize you. Des Ed shrieked something at me and pointed at Anna's abdomen, yelling something I didn't understand. The soft skin of her belly was rounded and white. That's when I realized what it was. Somehow, amid heavy fall clothes, by deafness and carefulness she had hidden it, an egg-like bulge and distended belly button. It gave a swift slap to Anna's pregnant belly that made her wince and shriek, and he yelled the one thing I did understand. I'd miss her. Nine, Anna pleaded. They teach it to you in basic German when you learn about dining out. A spoon, a fork, and of course, ein Messer, a knife. Jens looked sick as he scurried in, pushing a cart of medical instruments on a tray. Deshead shot a finger at the tray and then made a slashing motion across Anna's belly and barked something at me. His face was a reddening grimace. He shot a hand out into the top of the girl's skull and snaked behind her, pulling her into a headlock against the chair. Then he yelled at me again as he reached out with his free hand and began to strap her in. Anna screamed and thrashed under his grip. Jens and the staff all stood by the instruments on the cart, nervously watching me. I looked back at Death's head and shook my head. Why would he do this to her? Was it his? I knew it couldn't be mine, and I needed to get her out of here. Vater bitte nicht! Anna sobbed, choking on her tears. My face shot back to Death's head. This much I understood. Father, please don't. This was the father she had hidden from in the woods. The horrible man I had at least tacitly been helping. I imagined her disguising her pregnancy and the nausea and increased appetite and fatigue. It probably helped that Dad wasn't around too much. It was stupid, but a glimmer of hurt even flashed over me that this girl I had loved so much had done this thing with someone else, even if it had happened long before I was born. But all I really wanted was to get her away from this screaming death's head lunatic. Father, she called again through the sobs. Du bist nicht mein Kind. He growled into her face. You are not my daughter. I was in a living nightmare I couldn't end, a roller coaster I couldn't get off. I felt myself shaking as I stared into Anna's horrified face. Her enraged father shot me a look of indignant disbelief that I was not following orders as he tightened the last strap. I shuddered, feeling the gears on something big and easy and intoxicating slowly grinding to a halt. I shook my head. Ich kann nicht, I stammered awkwardly. The man sprung ramrod straight from his crouch over Anna and lunged at me. His face slammed against mine. I could see the perspiration on his brow and the glimmer of gold behind his right canine, even though I had read that the SS weren't supposed to have fillings. He was screaming something in German I really couldn't understand beyond the profanity. I couldn't stop shaking, looking down at my feet, feeling those hot, enraged eyes boring into the top of my skull. I felt his icy breath on my forehead. The scalpel in the instrument tray gleamed at my left. I felt sick about what I was going to do, but I had no choice. I reached out and felt the chilly knife like an ice pick in my palm. I swallowed and exhaled an unnatural breath and moved towards Anna, trying to ignore the terrifying figure at my side. She stared up at me, her face pale and slick with tears like the night I had found her. I thought about how this was all a scene played out before, and a doctor had done this horrible thing to her and her unborn baby before. Still her eyes showed no recognition of me. I stared into them for a moment, gave a sad smile to try to comfort her, and then locked my elbow and swung the scalpel. It went straight for the father's neck. I felt a move against me, and I was slammed against the wall by what felt like a freight train of old maddened memory. I saw stars race across my field of vision after my head whipped against the old stones. Then I saw nothing but a bright light burn into my eyes. I closed my eyes against the brightness. 
The air all around me felt different now. I opened my eyes again to see a small, bright circle of light shooting into my face from the doorway. Put your weapon down, a man's voice shouted in Alabama English. The MPs had come. I just wanted to thank you for listening. I hope that you like the story. Right now, this podcast is available on YouTube. It's available on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. So if you're not already listening to the story in your preferred format, please look at the links below and find what you need. If you go onto Facebook and do a search for Keystrokes Amid Cobwebs, you can find our Facebook page and learn more about the show and also potential future shows. So please get on there so we can become friends. And finally, I'm really looking for feedback. Do you like the story? Do you hate it? What are some things you enjoyed or things you would change? Um, if you can, please give me an email at keystrokesamidthecobwebs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you.